I'm Roy Sharples and welcome to the Unknown Origins podcast. Why are you listening to this podcast? Are you an industry expert looking for insights? Are you growing your career? Or are you a dear friend helping to spur your old pal on? I created the Unknown Origins podcast to have the most inspiring conversations with creative industry personalities and experts about entrepreneurship, pop culture, art, music, film, and fashion. Design pioneer Clive Gronier is an acknowledged expert in service design, design thinking, digital and technology innovation, and customer experience. He has led award-winning design teams for companies worldwide, including IDEO, and founded the consultancy Tangerine with Apple design chief Sir Johnny Ive. He is a trustee of the Royal Society of Arts, a visiting professor at Glasgow School of Art, and head of the pioneering service design programme at the Royal College of Art in London. Welcome, Clive Gronier. What inspired and attracted you to become a designer in the first place? Hello, Roy. Great to be here. Uh, that's an interesting question because, of course, service design hasn't existed uh, for the entirety of my life as a designer. So it was kind of more of a discovery and a somewhat accidental one at that. Um, I would say that the root of my interest and and discovery of service design goes goes back to my life as a product designer. Uh, and I started life graduating from Central St. Martins with a real interest in uh, public engagement and engineering or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> but it was this desire to uh, actually design the products that people used. I found fabulous and managed to get myself into Central School of Art and Design as it was then, yeah. now Central St. Martins. When you work as a product designer, especially in my early uh, career, working with wonderful people such as um, Mogridge Associates and ID2, who became yeah. the, the big international design consultancy, IDEO, you realize that um, you can't just design a product uh, by shape or an imaginative thought in your head. You actually are quite constrained or enabled by a whole load of decisions that are to do with uh, material choice, manufacturing process choice. And those, those choices are made often on the size of the market or financial. So I learned very, very early on as a product designer that uh, you couldn't design in isolation of quite a lot of other strategic things, systems and, yes. and decisions that had to be made. And I spent most of my design life trying to go upstream because if I wanted to put a beautiful curve on a product I was designing, I kind of had to justify it and, <laughs> and check there was an investment that would allow, it was going to tool yes. it up, you know, or was I just, was I just designing with a bit of bent sheet metal? <laughs> and I, I found that side of the design process really fascinating that there were lots of decisions that would allow me creative freedom or not. Yeah. So um, that, that got me interested in that side of things. And the other aspect of, product design that I think is very interesting is the factoring in of time. And the example I have of that is if we design something like a vacuum cleaner as a product designer, there's obviously a lot of uh, design decisions around the actual using of the vacuum cleaner, but then you go and put a hook on it or something so that you could hang it up when you're not using it. And I always found that quite interesting that there was yeah. 
not just the usage, there was the un- not using it. <laughs> there was the <laughs> storage of things. The cable has to wind yes. up and, yeah. you know, the hose pipes. So this is a, a, a convoluted way of saying that I was interested in the systemic side of design very early on. And then I got into digital through um, working with Orange, the telecommunications yes. company. Sadly, it doesn't exist in the UK anymore, but it does in many countries, owned by France Telecom now. Yeah. And I was taken in to be a customer experience um, person because they wanted a product designer who thought that way. We realized both sides realized quite late on they didn't they they misnamed the job, <laughs> and they really wanted somebody to look at the the user interface yeah. from a product design experience. They called that customer experience. But in the meantime, I discovered that a real customer experience was a whole host of activities like the attitudes of the the, the, the salespeople in the in the retail environment, the the, the contact center, the performance yeah. of the network, you know, the handset was just a, a portal to this thing I realized was a service. So it was yes. in fact going into the digital world um, and being mis- mistitled in my job title that made me discover customer experience. And then I realized that we needed to orchestrate that and not, otherwise it was an accident. Yeah. <laughs> and we all know that the bits of customer experiences that go wrong are the ones we remember. Yes. So the idea that we could design customer experience and design the service with all the touch points was uh, a powerful epiphany for me, yeah. um, probably about 10, 15 years ago when I, when I was at Orange. The Orange brand was an unusual name for a telco's firm and their brand values and logo underpinned that edginess, confidence and belief with their slogan, the future is bright, the future is orange. As a fledgling software engineer and interaction designer, I was involved in some consulting work at Orange in the mid-1990s on their Just Talk pay-as-you-go mobile solution to enable consumers to purchase credit in advance of service use. They were young, dynamic and very much in vogue at that time. So that really saddens me to hear what they have became or have not became. Absolutely. I, I always, I mean, that's why I went there. It was such an attractive brand. And, you know, I felt that that had the potential of being a European apple yes. to mix my fruits up. Yeah. But, um, and of course, I then went on to start, or uh, had I done that already? Yes, I had already started my own company, Tangerine, previous to that. So, and of course, my colleague at Tangerine, Johnny Ive, was at Apple. So we had a lot of, lot of fruit in our lives at that point. (laughs) Um, But yeah, no, they were great. And, you know, it was orange, not, not Vodafone or T-Mobile. It was absolute antidote to technology. And it was all about the human value in technology, uh, which is still a battle I wage now. What does being a service designer mean to you? The challenge of being a service designer and, and and also the joy of being a service designer is, I suppose, the, the ability to stand back and see the system as a whole and then identify how you can orchestrate, I'll use that word again, yeah. the system to actually bring joy and efficiency and <laughs> solutions to really intangible problems that I would never have imagined myself being able to solve in my previous guises as different type of designer. So yeah. 
you know, for me as a product designer, I designed things. The first thing I designed was a car radio for Ford. I thought that was fantastic, mm. you know, but, and then later on a, you know, fizzy drink machine or, <laughs> or a toilet. <laughs> um, and that was all very exciting. And I felt that was terribly important. And then when I went into digital, I realized that was another world that you could influence at a scale that was, you know, almost unimaginable. And I very much enjoyed as a digital designer, um, and at Orange, actually, again, was when I was correlated, certainly for the first time for Orange, um, that, that usability uh, was uh, affecting revenue in a positive way. They, they had this, um, they had a Nokia phone and a Motorola phone, very quick anecdote. Um, and they thought that Nokia phone was more successful for them merely because Nokia people were cooler and had more friends. But I was able to prove it was usability of a yes. Nokia was way better than a Motorola. And that's why they were earning more from their Nokias. So that was a, a great, a great thing to discover as well. But as I, as I got into service design, began to realize that we were able to solve some really tricky things like the, the customer journey of bereavement at, at a bank. Um, it's a horrible experience yeah. and service design beyond user experience and digital design beyond product design was able to actually solve problems like that. And I think the culmination of that was last year I worked with um, Policy Lab in the UK government. And at one point we were working in the United Nations in New York, solving some really interesting problems. And I thought, wow, this is a long way from a car radio and a fizzy drink machine. So I think in a nutshell, it's the impact you can have is what I really love about service yes. design. What is your creative process in terms of how do you make the invisible visible by dreaming up ideas, turning those ideas into concepts and then bringing those concepts to actualization. In becoming a service designer, and also during my time at the Design Council about 15 years ago, actually it probably goes back even before that, I wrote a book. I was interested in creative process. I was interested in design methodologies. So I wrote a book 20 years ago called yeah. Smart Products or Smart Design. It's got a few yeah. different names, <laughs> depending which edition you buy. And um and I was really, I just loved exploring 20 very different processes, ways of thinking, individual designers, design teams, from cars to robot dogs to every type of product. And that got me interested in the processes of design and trying to articulate them better so that people understood them. That was my original motivation. And I learned a lot about my own process. When I got to the Design Council in the UK, um, where I was in the early noughties, we wanted to help people understand design and see its value. That was our job, really. Yeah. And that, that went from small companies to big companies to politicians and governments. And, um, and we actually created a, a kind of mapping of design process that some people might be very familiar with and some people might have never heard of, which we called the double diamond. Yeah. And the double diamond um, was came from research and it was an attempt to understand why so many people's design projects, development projects in whatever sort or type went wrong. Yeah. And they normally went wrong because people would see a problem, have one idea and then deliver it at great speed and cost. Usually then didn't work and was probably solving the wrong problem didn't understand what it was really meant to be doing. And I found that fascinating. Yeah. So creativity is a really 
undervalued part of service design because people, <laughs> perhaps as a result of my double design diamond process, spend a lot of time going back to the source material and finding out what is the problem we should be solving. And I do think that is incredibly important. And I find that going out and talking to real people and understanding what they really struggle with is something that we are still incredibly bad at. So for me, the creative process starts before it. It starts with understanding what is really going on. And my my favourite uh, story of discovery is uh, is at the during the development process of Terminal Five in Heathrow, yes, London's yeah, airport, yes. major airport, and um, they looked at a number of you know future forecasting trends as they developed that terminal. Uh, and realised that one particular trend was that people were ageing fast, but still wealthy and healthy. And therefore, it was likely that older people would travel more. So they followed older people around the airport to see if they could get some insight they could put into the design process and make it you know, friendly to an, an older user. Yeah. And one thing they noticed immediately was that um, older people went, to the, went into the toilets a lot. So they kind of made an assumption there that they obviously had weak bladders and they would have to increase the numbers of toilets. But one slightly strange researcher went in and followed older people into the toilet and discovered they were standing around listening to the announcements because it was the only place they could hear when their flight was called in a noisy, you know, hubbub of an airport, um, concentrating on retail environment rather than getting you to your gate. So that was a fantastic piece of insight that, you know, then, then you look at terminal five now and it has lots of seating areas away from retail has very good sound systems and lots more signage. So you can see your flight and it's just a much more relaxed experience because of that. But I love that epiphany of going into a toilet and finding somebody not doing what you would expect them to do um, and getting an insight that then drives your creativity because then it becomes very easy and enjoyable to solve that problem and to imagine uh, how to do that. And the the two other things about creativity I really value enormously. First is simple quantity of ideas. People, non-designers are very puzzled by the idea they should have more than one idea. And, you know, I love um, techniques like crazy eights and brainstorming and yes. yeah. and the safe space of allowing people to have ideas without being criticised. Back to the double diamond, the shape of the diamond refers to whether you should be divergent in your thinking and then convergent. So yes. when you're being creative, have lots and lots of ideas. Yeah. You know, if you, if you haven't got lots of ideas, you might not have had the real one that's going to change the world. Um, and then you focus and prioritise and it doesn't mean you 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 develop lots of ideas, but you've got to have had lots of ideas. So I'm a big, big believer in that. And then the second aspect of that is I really enjoy getting people to think out of their comfort zone. So I run usually my brainstorming. I, I love putting people into uh, pretending they work for a different company like Apple or Disney yes. or pretending they're pretending they're Donald Trump. How would Donald Trump solve this? Give me eight ideas now. Yeah. And people go crazy with that. <laughs> They love it, you know. Wow. So I'm a big believer that creativity um, is is something a lot of people, more people can do than they think. But I think some of these techniques really surprise people at how creative they can be um, and how, how they can combine their sort of latent knowledge with, with, with really great ideas. But don't just have one, have lots yes. and think out of the box, like everyone says. <laughs> Absolutely. So dovetailing into this, the skills and capabilities needed to be a service designer, what do you 
What do you think the, the, the key skills need, are needed to be a service designer are? It's, it's a really good question. And it's one we talk about a lot, um, actually with my tutors and, and visiting lecturers. Service design uh, has perhaps a reputation of being a little bit formulaic. There are a bunch of tools, um, you know, it might be a journey map or an empathy map or yeah. a stakeholder map, or it might be, um, uh, I'm trying to think, a blueprint, you know. There are these quite well-known tools that service design delivers and lots of people pick up that toolkit and, you know, announce to the world that they are uh, service designers. But I think the reality is that you can have those tools and still fail and still not change the world. Um, so I talk about a bunch of behaviours, actually, that I think are the key skills yeah. for a good service designer. And there's a sort of uh, four key ones, I think. Um one, the first one is curiosity, insane curiosity. You know, who was that yeah. person that went into the toilets? You know, that's insane, but they did it. Yeah. And um, and I think that's where you find, uh, you know, the amazing epiphanies of, of um, discovery. Yeah. And then, so that curiosity is important. And the second skill or behavior you need, I think, is the courage yeah. to go back to the world and tell it like it really is and say, that thing you think is working or you think is absolutely fine is not, Um, you know, it needs to be better. And I think that is combined that courage with an optimism, an optimism that we can make an improvement on every single thing in the world and every service designer worth their salt has that optimism. Yeah. They don't look at something and say, Oh, I don't think I can improve that. Well, who would say that? Yeah. (laughs) So that optimism that you can do better is, is a great driver, but the courage to go and tell people that they should do better. And here are the, here are the, here's the reality that will help them make it better. And then collaboration design has become, especially in service design, a very collaborative thing. This is not about a mystical designer from a mountaintop coming down and, and saying, this is what you should do. It's different to that. Now we're facilitating increasingly leading actually transformation and change Um, but using our skills and our tools and our behavior to do that so I think collaboration the ability to go and persuade somebody who does not want to change um, with the evidence with the creativity uh, and the solutions to make change is really important and then a sense of sort of openness is part of that as well and uh, my my fourth c um I can't remember what it is. I said curiosity, courage, uh, collaboration. Oh, and creativity itself, of course. The third one was creativity. And this is where service designers sometimes forget to be creative. It's all very well knowing what the problem is. It's all very well knowing how to affect change. But we need brilliant ideas. And that's where creativity and making things tangible very, very quickly and trying them out, prototyping, validating. That's a key skill in service design. Stop the discussion, stop the procrastination, stop the constant indecision. Are we right? Are we wrong? Do we dare? Just do it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but in a small way, in a painless way, in a way you learn and be honest that you can be wrong and then do it again till you're right. That to me is is certainly how I teach design and how I, how I feed creativity into the system. Some standout points from your story, Clive, that are worth underpinning. This unveiled two important themes to your creative process. The importance of looking left when others are looking right to seek the unseen, 
by challenging the status quo and that of rejecting the convention of what is perceived as the norm to find the best solution to the problem. You do not have to be an expert to solve a domain-specific problem. Being an outsider, you can see a solution to the problem with an open mind and connect experiences and insights from multiple areas better than a a domain specialist. They can sometimes get ingrained in their area and be part of the problem itself. I think that's an excellent point. I'm glad you picked up on that. It's a a, um, subject of constant debate, actually. Um, But I think there is a massive advantage to being non-expert. I'm expert in the tools of service design. I'm not expert in surgery or running a council or anything else. But when we put their expertise with my expertise, you get something amazing. And I think that ability to be a generalist is something I'm really proud of. But it is something that people struggle with. Experts themselves can get quite territorial and upset at some some. Uh, yes. I don't know, Polonect te- lads and, 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 and lady <laughs> popping in with some, you know, post-it notes and some Sharpies. They don't like it all the yes. time. <laughs> so one has to build other skills of diplomacy and, uh, and the like. Um, but I think it's that, that's, that, that's where collaboration really works. Expertise with this set of processes that challenges. We're here to challenge. Yes. And we're here to be, to ask the stupid questions without caring about whether, whether we're going to sound stupid um, because we'll do something with it. You know, we'll make something quickly and, 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 and effective uh, that will have impact. And every act of service design, every project I've ever worked on has involved a high degree of um, convincing people, quickly getting a result so people then understand the impact you are probably going to have and you bring them into the fold and then you're marching at great speed. But it is... Um, it is always an issue, but I think you're right. For me, it's the power of being the outsider, yeah. looking left and others right. You're in a time machine and it's going backward. Based on the lessons learned to date in terms of the pitfalls to avoid and the keys to success, what would you say to an aspiring designer? That's a great question. I've been asked that question a couple of times and I was racking my brain to remember how I replied. <laughs> but um, <laughs> I, because often I'm talking to you know people of that age, actually, which yes. is really one of the great pleasures of life. Um, I think the honest answer is um, I wish I'd had the confidence to realise I was right all along. Uh, with age comes, uh, you know, it's much easier to make your point as you're older and, and yes. more experienced perhaps just have uh, a better ability to put points across. But I realise now that many things I was told I was wrong about, and I actually wasn't. And we need, you know, perhaps we just need to be better at that communication, at listening in order to communicate. But the core uh, thoughts and and um, d- and desires to, to put things right were were right, and I should have fought a bit harder. But maybe I should have understood how to communicate them better. So that might be the different thing. The other thing I have learnt over time is a better understanding of people who are entirely different to me, people who have entirely different Myers Briggs profile, and. Yeah. Um, and, you know, to, to, to whom I appear as a chocolate teapot because I'm fluffy and designery and not an expert, you know, and certainly in working in very intense areas like a bank, yes. you get people who just look at you and think, why are you even in the room? Yeah. So 
being able to to put across new ideas, creative, brilliant solutions in a way that doesn't upset people of a different character and personality type is a real skill. I'm, I'm beginning to pick it up, but I, I might have, if someone had told me that when I was 18, I'm, I might have been more successful. What's your vision for the future of service design in consideration of the forces that's driving change in the world, such as politics, economics, sociocultural and technological? What a great question that is. Um, I and mean, the future of service design is is sort of moving on a daily basis. And I often find that it's my students at the Royal College of Art who are inventing the future of design, of yeah. service design. Um, at the same time, there's some age-old issues we want to be more successful at. So I think in terms of um, the nature of service design, it's a very magpie kind of thing. You know, we're currently stealing the clothes of behavioural science, uh, but we've got creativity and they haven't, so that's great. And, uh, we've got, and you know, we, we, we are using associated design tools like speculative design, which is that ability to imagine quite a long way in the future. Yes. Perhaps a, a more critical dystopian view. I'm always criticising my students being too optimistic in the stories they tell. And it's much more interesting when things go wrong. Yeah. And, and of course, the, the, the poster services of people like um, Airbnb and Uber, you know, 10 years down the line, there's riots in Barcelona and Uber's nearly thrown out of London. You know, that's that, that, that wonderful sort of, oh, this is the service we all need, it goes bad sometimes. And I think it's good to think about that. So I think speculative design and future forecasting, things like that is an important aspect of service design that we'll develop. But what I see right now is that um, I'm happily in a bubble of service designers who uh, and service design friends yeah. who employ people who come and do projects with us. And there's some fantastic companies, accountancy companies, healthcare, you know, we have incredible partners, but we're still a little blip on people's understanding of how we solve, how humanity solves yes. problems. And, you know, when you look at COVID, we automatically turn to science, which we need if we're going to have a vaccine and we need to interpret the data and make the right decisions. Yes. But science has not helped deliver a track and trace system, which I don't think I need to tell anybody has been a total failure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and when you look at something like a track and trace system, you realise that is a service design project. We could have sorted that out in a, in a, in a week. Yeah. But we're not asked in. We're not invited to that party. When I go and talk at technology conferences about AI and blockchain. I've written research papers on blockchain. I know what I'm talking about. Yeah. <laughs> and, and we've done projects with artificial intelligence companies and, and they love it. But I went to a conference back in September when one could go to conferences or November last year. Yes. And when it was announced that somebody from the Royal College of Art was coming on stage, everybody left. And you kind of think, oh, I see. They're expecting me to turn up with a painting or something. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So we have got a long way to go to help people understand that there's this, that there are some design methodologies here that will really stop us making mistakes and they will help us solve big problems and they will help us be more sustainable, more human centric. And this isn't a little niche bunch of people on the side. There's something here for everyone to get yes. involved with. And I think culturally we're a really long way away from an acknowledgement of that. You know, if I go to the design museum in London, yeah. there's nothing at all about service design there. It's all chairs and cars, mm. and posters. 
So we still have a long way to go to understand that these intangible tools are valuable. It's one of the reasons I'm investing a lot of time in my students on storytelling, because, you know, we don't have a chair, we don't have a car, but we do have stories and we do have impact. And that's what we've chosen as our tangible um, medium to get our message across. But uh, there's still a long way to go. And I'm going to do my damnedest to get us there. Design influences society by provoking action that changes minds, inspiring new opinions, instilling values, and translating experiences across space and time by enabling people to communicate with each other through images, sounds, and stories. It is an expression of the soul that connects emotionally with a lasting lifetime impact. You have been listening to the Unknown Origins podcast. Please follow, subscribe, rate, and review us. For more information, go to unknownorigins.com. Thank you for listening.